Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Gail Wilkinson, founder and managing partner of Vitalize Venture Group, a seed stage fund and angel group based in Chicago and San Francisco. And in this episode, Gail goes through how this all got started, how the angel network began, how she raised the fund, her experience as a Kaufman Fellow, and she goes through that a bit more as well, deal sourcing, the diligence process, how she spends her day, the value add of Vitalize Venture Group, the diversity committee that Gail created for Vitalize Venture Group, what that entails, what other people can kind of get from that as well if you're looking at adding that in your own VC fund, also going through a number of different things that founders should think about when raising venture capital, things they should ask their VCs, and so much more in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcast. Without further ado, here's Gail Wilkinson, founder and managing partner of Vitalize Venture Group. Gail, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Excited to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show, and there's a lot to discuss with Vitalize Venture Group, and you're doing a variety of things. To get started with, what is Vitalize Venture Group doing today, Gail? Sure. Vitalized Venture Group is uh, both a pre-seed and a seed stage investment firm. So we're looking at rounds of one to three million dollars. And we do have a bit of a unique model because we've got both an angel network and a fund. What we learned from that is that founders really love that we've got the two funding entities and we've got this robust network of 300 plus angels who can roll up their sleeves and really help founders with connections or whatever operational advice that they need. Then in terms of industry focus, uh, we look at B2B software. And then um, in terms of focus areas there, it's future of work, learning, finance, and retail. And with this swell, Gail, I know this started as an angel network back in 2012. Can you tell us more about how this all got started? Sure. So I'm more of an operator at heart. Um, I'd actually started my first business in 2008 which failed. And then in 2011, started my second business, which also failed. So as I finished business school at the end of 2012, this was the the next opportunity that I had. And somebody approached me saying, hey, we want to start an angel network. We don't really don't know how, how and we can't, um, we can't give you many resources or we don't even have a salary to pay you, but are you interested in doing this? And so I, while I hadn't considered venture before, I was really excited because it was starting a company to help others start companies. And then once we got going with the Angel Network, I never looked back from there. And Gail, you came into this not knowing how to start an Angel Network, you've never done it before. What were some of the first things you did to get this all set up and start this Angel Network? Well, the very first thing I did was just start talking to people. So I had to find entrepreneurs and, and figure out, hey, what works and what doesn't work today? What do you like about existing VC firms and angel groups? So what works and what could we essentially copy and then what didn't work and what would we need to improve upon. So we created a plan for how to do that from the ops side. And then on the actual investor side, we started talking with folks um, within the network who might want to um, be a part of it and invest in these startups that we found. So the goal initially was to find 40 people to seed the network. And then if we were able to find that many people, then we would move forward. So it took about three months um, from the inception of the idea 
to the point where we had 40 people who had raised their hand and said, I'm in. And so at that point, I got out a credit card and got the <laughs> company incorporated. That's amazing. What were some of the logistics behind that? I and mean, even just setting this up for other people who you know may want to start an angel network or even just uh, we'll get into a fund eventually. But what are some of the things that had to be set up with that to even get this to make this actual a company of sorts? Sure. So we did a lot of research on this and the gold standard for angel groups was to create a not-for-profit corporation in the state that you are located in, but it's not a tax-exempt corporation. So it's not technically um, a 501c3 or c6 because the government at this point doesn't give tax-exempt status to angel groups. Um, so in terms of, corp- of, of entity structure, it's a membership organization that the investors pay a membership fee to, um, to belong to and have access to the deals and the resources. And then when we look at companies, we learn that we would need to set up SPVs, which are single purpose LLCs for each of the deals that we do. And we had to figure out from an ops and admin perspective, how do we, how do we source the deals? How do we screen them, do due diligence? How do we um, do the administrative closing? So that was all the the nuts and bolts that we had to figure out at the very beginning. Yeah. And that part of it, I mean, that's something that any investor is going to understand they had to have a process in place for that. How were you then sourcing deals in those early days? And we'll definitely take it through to today, but in the early days, especially sourcing deals back then when you had this, this angel group. So the, the first thing that we did was leverage the, the angels in the network. And then we also started to build a co-investment network. So these would be other folks running angel groups across the country or folks at VC funds who might be able to send us deals. And I will say this was really the hardest thing to to get started when um, when we first formed the group because it's it's a chicken or the egg because a lot <laughs> of times folks will only send you deals yep. when you've got a track record. And I remember a, a VC telling me early on, you have to start writing checks. You've got to write checks and you have to start sending your deals to other VCs and angel groups. And then eventually you'll start to see the flywheel effect and you'll be able to to send deals back and forth. And that did take us you know, if, if I, it took us a while because if I look at our data from the early days, our deal flow has probably, um, you know, 15 to 20 X since then. And it just takes a lot of time to get that network built. And, and with that as well, then obviously you're trying to find different deals within this early on and you can leverage the, like the Notre Dame network, for instance, and then the diligence process, you, you hadn't been an investor before. What were some of those things you were going through at that time in terms of diligence on companies, um, being so kind of new to this? I'm curious as to how, how it started for you in terms of the diligence process. Good question. I think, I think this is where it helped that I had started a few businesses that, that failed because I knew, I knew it didn't work. And I had a, a strong enough network at the time of other operators. And then obviously our angel network is fantastic in terms of folks who have different types of functional industry expertise. I really just leaned heavily on, on that network and went and asked people, hey, here's what we're looking at. What do you think? And over time, you know, this, this I think, approach works well for a lot of folks in the investment world because you just start to see patterns and you, you learn from actually getting out there, rolling up your sleeves, talking to people and figuring out what, what's working, what's not working. Yeah. From that, then understanding that that was your, your process early on, you're figuring this out by talking to people and getting a feel for, okay, what things can we do to actually have this diligence process to invest in the right companies? As you grew, though, then you invested in a number of companies. You had way more people, you know, hundreds of people in this, this angel group. I'm curious from there, how did you decide that? the time was right to start a fund then? 
back in 2017, we realized that there was quite a bit of interest in what we were doing on the Angel Network side, and we 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 started to do some research and talk with folks to see if there was appetite for a fund. Back in 2012, when we had our our first formation meetings, we knew at some point we would want to investigate a fund um, a fund solution as well. And in 2017, we believed the time was right based on um, some interest from our network. So we went out targeting a five to ten million dollar fund one. And after um, a few months fundraising, we did our first close at just under thirteen million. And then we ended up with a first fund of sixteen million total. How long did that did that process take of raising that that first fund? And was there anything uh, along that that was most helpful as you were going through that and raising a fund for the first time? It took it took about three months for for the first close, and then the 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 second and third closes were within the twelve months following that um, time period. And I I you know it's it's interesting looking back because um, I was very lucky in the sense that I had built a strong network from the angel group side, and so we had quite a bit of folks um, from that entity who also invested in the fund. And I think it's it's a good example of uh, folks starting new funds, just having that exposure to others who can see what you're doing in terms of investment activity. Even if you're doing individual angel deals, building a network of folks that you're co-investing with is helpful because that, um, that longer term view of how you're sourcing deals, how you work with companies to add value is something that really served us well when we started a fund because of the five years of experience we had on the network side. Yeah. And one of the things that I guess we didn't really chat about back then for the, those five years too, you mentioned early on, like initially when you just got started with the angel network, didn't have a, a salary necessary to pay. How are you like financing the way for you personally along the way uh, for that while you're starting like the angel group even? Well, it's a funny, funny story, I guess. I, um, I received a scholarship from an organization called C200 at the very end of uh, my second year of business school at Booth. And so I, I literally had three months of loan money left when when they asked me, when some of the um, very first board members at Irish Angels asked me to, um, to come on as the founding director. And so I said, hey, I've got three months. I'm all in. Let's do this. And it, that's that's what we did because I, I knew I, <laughs> I only had a little bit of money. So when you um, when you really need something to happen, Justin, you, you can do it. I feel like you fi- you find a way you make it happen. And uh, that's right. Yeah, I, I love the resilience of that. And I, I guess having the experience like you mentioned of of being a founder before and then starting this, you know that you know there's going to be unknowns within starting a business, but you can figure it out. And this is in this case, an angel network, you can figure it out, especially if you're if you're committed to it. And it's something that you want to do. And so along the way, then you invest in a number of companies through that. And then you start this fund in, in 2017. And then there's also, obviously, you had a number of exits through the angel group. Take me through some of those and maybe just how how it impacted the fund or reinforced your thinking along investing. I'm curious as to how the exits were impactful. It was obviously a very exciting time to go through each of the exits um, that returned capital to our group. Um one, because as an investor, you have to figure out how to to return capital. Um, and as somebody who had never been in the investment space before, um, those opportunities really afforded me a lot of learning to see how did a transaction work? How long did it take? What were the important factors to think about from the investor side um, going through that? And how could we help the founder as they were working either with the acquirer or with um, a broker to help them with that acquisition? 
during those scenarios. Um, and then in, in hindsight, now that we've been through uh, three, three to five exits, because um, I, I, I have that range because we've done a few secondaries as well. So we technically still have holdings in some of the companies that we've exited part of our whole part of our positions. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it's 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 so clear to me how important exit strategy is from the beginning. And so we actually now do work at the very onset of of deals that we do where we'll provide a founder with a bunch of information on comparable transactions in their space, on potential investment bankers that could be good for them to get to know over the next several years. And then what's most important is a list that we compile of potential acquirers in the space. And we provide founders all of that at a very early stage, obviously, <laughs> since we're focused at pre-seed and seed, and we don't want them to exit until they have much, until they've built much more value. But we think that having, you know, at the back of your mind, just a, a strong list of folks that you probably want to start creating relationships with over the, the next few years is going to create um, a path where that happens more often than not. Yeah, and and I want to get into a number of different things with with more of like what the fund is doing, the fund plus the angel network, how the kind of the dynamics are today, and uh, also getting into some DNI initiatives and things around you know more so helping founders. But I'm also curious. You are a Kauffman Fellow as well. How did that come about? And what has that experience been like for you, Gail? I was first um, approached by a number of my friends in the network uh, about a year before I joined. And these are, are individuals who I respected greatly, still respect greatly, and am friends with today. And they said, hey, this network is fantastic. It's something that you should really consider. And at that point, I started having conversations with individuals that I didn't know who were Coffin Fellows to try and get more um, a, a richer picture of, of what to expect if I were to join. And um, I think most Kaufman Fellows that you that you meet will mention that it's a very inclusive group. It is a really forward-looking organization, and they're they're looking to make a big impact in a lot of ways. And the the boots on the ground experience for me really has been amazing in terms of just getting to know individuals and in all aspects of venture around the world. Yeah, what an amazing experience to be a part of. I've interviewed a couple people who are in, I think, the 25th cohort right now, uh, one being Blaine Vess, um, um, and then as well as Brent Baltimore from Graycroft. And yeah, they definitely said the experience has been great and a great way to meet people, obviously expanding your network as well within that. And you know that came years and years after you started the Irish Angels Network. And take me through then the dynamic today of you have the Irish Angels or the Angel Network side of things, you have the fund. How does that all kind of play a part into the greater Vitalized Venture Group? Good question. And this is something that we we have been pretty flexible on because we're still learning. Um, but, and if we rewind to 2012 when we first started and we knew we would have a fund at some point, we figured that they would be completely separate. But the, the secret sauce that we have learned and realized in the last several years after our team has been managing both of those entities is that there's actually um, quite a lot of lift by having the organizations combined. So if a founder comes to us, we'll first, you know, get to know them, what they're looking to do with their business, and then how much they're raising in this round. And then we'll talk to them about what it looks like to work with either Angel Network or a fund. We'll let them decide what makes sense for them. And then we'll go through the process on our end. And there have been a number of times where you know, a founder may have said, I would love to work with your fund. And then we'll go through the due diligence process. And we say, 
it's not, it's not going to be fit for the fund, but we do think the angel group would love to see this. And they end up working with the angel network and getting a lot of value because of those 300 folks who can roll up their sleeves. Um, and then there have also been cases where, you know, a founder will end up getting checks from both sides of our organization. And so we have a lot of firepower from a funding perspective because of our combo model. With that as well, I mean, what are some of the things typically that separate them in terms of companies working with, you know, one or the other, let's just say, or being a better fit for one? I know you gave a little bit of overview in the beginning, but I'm curious as to what are some more of those things that maybe founders understand, like which would be the better way to go in terms of how they work with you? Our fund focus is only on B2B software. And then the, the thematic areas are future of work, learning, finance, and retail. But our angel network will look at any industry. If you, if, if you consider our data, about two-thirds is business-to-business software. So that really is our sweet spot. But the other third of our network investments are um, B2C software. For example, we're investors in Chime. And then we also do consumer products. So we're investors in a company called Carpe, which is an antiperspirant. We also will do medical devices and diagnostics as well on the, on the network side. So let's just think about B2B software. Obviously, that's where the overlap really happens. Um, oftentimes, the founders are going to want to work, want, going to want to work with the fund first, um, because unfortunately, out, out there in the wild, there is not a great perception of angel groups all the time, because um, sometimes it does take quite a long time to get through their process. Ours actually is pretty fast. I just looked at the data the other day, and our average time on the angel network side from first meeting to um, getting a commitment is 40 days. Whereas I think if you have conversations with a lot of other angel groups, it's probably going to be somewhere between three and six months. Um, but if we go back to once once they you know say, hey, let's, let's work with the fund, if we go through due diligence, sometimes um, it's not a fit because of the return potential. Like our fund is looking for a 30x plus return. So we're really looking for those moonshots, whereas the angel group is looking for a 10x plus return. And there are tons of great businesses that have 10 to 20x return profiles that would be amazing fit for the angel network. But with our fund one, we're really conscious that we have to have some massive winners in order to be able to raise future funds. Yeah, it makes sense with how you have the different dynamics, expectations. And that is what I've come across as well, talking to a number of investors, some who you know are angel investors and focus on that, just the different expectations around a fund versus yeah, an angel angel investor as well. And I think it's important for founders to kind of understand that. And and one of the things, the other things I wanted to mention and talk about with, with what you're doing as well, I know that I think it was 2018, you created like a diversity committee and really that changed the way you invested. Uh, I'd love to hear about how that committee came about and what it kind of entails exactly. Absolutely. You know, this is one of the things that we're really proud about in our angel network. We, we identified a need to create a diversity committee because um, anytime you mobilize, you mobilize around an initiative and put resources behind it you, and you start to measure, you are automatically more likely to succeed. And, and we knew that, um, you know, we, we wanted to put these resources to work to ensure that we were thinking about diversity and inclusion in the startups that we're working with, as well as the investors that we bring into our organization, the staff that we're hiring, co-investors we work with. It's, it's really not just one piece. It's all facets of what we're doing. And so this, this diversity committee put goals into place back in 2018. And it's really cool now because looking back, when you see the data, we've made um, huge leaps and bounds movement in terms of uh, a much more diverse set of companies that are coming in the top of the funnel, as well as the ones that are getting investment. 
And with that, Gail, as well, I mean, this this committee you put in place, I saw the numbers and yeah, it was a lot more investment, which is great. And what does the committee consist of? How does that work? Because I'm sure there are other either investors or either uh, founders as well, kind of curious about what that entails around it. I'd be, I'd be curious to know how that works. Sure. So we're meeting quarterly. I mean, this committee is run by a member of our team named Katie Shinnick, and she puts together um, curriculum that we're following each quarter, which which entails one looking at our goals and the data that allows us to understand how are we tracking to those goals, and then we'll also discuss anything else that's relevant based on that quarter's um, topics. And the 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 whole goal with the committee is to um, use it as a forcing function of sorts to stop and reflect on what's working in this area. And then looking forward, what do we need to do to continue to improve? And having this regular cadence of meetings and um, this agenda or content that we're always looking at allows us the time and space that's needed to start to really make um, make movement there. And, and from that as well, on that kind of similar note, I know we talked about you know sourcing deals and everything uh, initially and kind of early on and how that looked. Then today, I understand you have this diversity committee you now have expanded outside of you know where you started initially being really Notre Dame ties and I think just in Chicago you've expanded a lot since then take me through how today this is like you know eight years in essentially how the deal sourcing side of things looks I'd be really curious to hear about that at this point about two-thirds of our deals come from co-investor referrals um, I'm, I'm a big believer at the, especially at the early stage um, which is where we focus that a strong syndicate is something that's a really powerful asset for any founder to have and, and for other investors. So I love to see at least two, if not three or four other investors in, in a given round. Um, and, and from that perspective, we spend a lot of time internally um, developing relationships with co-investors around the country um, who are focusing on rounds of the same size and in the same industries where, where we do. Um, and we're sending them our deals quite often. We're asking them to send us their deals quite often. And I really like to think of um, think of venture as musical chairs. So <laughs> there's all these things moving, right? And it, and when the music stops, and I'm sitting across from another co-investor or another founder, you know, do you have something that we can work on together right now? Which means that this constant communication of of outreach and being um, uh, very ready to react when we get anything in the door is really important because timing is so critical here that having that really large network of co-investors affords us more opportunities to be able to do great deals with great co-investors. Yeah. And on that note as well, um, I, how are you going through helping the founders that you invest in? That's a huge part of you know, any, any VC and some are doing it you know, better than others in terms of how they're actually being a true, a true value add. Um, how are you doing that at, at Vitalize Venture Group? What's kind of the value add for you guys there as well? I, I love this question, Justin, because if we go back to those first conversations that I had with founders when I started back in 2012, the one of the number two, uh, one of the top two complaints that I heard from entrepreneurs was these um, these funding organizations promise all this help to us, and oftentimes we don't see it. And this is a really big opportunity that um, we in the venture capital space have. You've seen a lot of platform um, in initiatives popping up, and that's great. Um, but how do we make sure that we are actually adding value? 
So one of the things that we did was was hire somebody internally. So Joel Harris on our team manages our, our biz dev platform um, component of what we do. And he is solely working with our founders um, each week to make sure that any requests that they have, we go out to our network and try and, and get them a connection. So we've, we've um, for example, a lot, of, a lot of the questions that we get are connections to customers and one of the things that we've learned is that the more specific that our founders can be about what they're looking for in terms of names of exact people or um, a handful of select companies that they're looking for, we will we'll literally go to LinkedIn and our databases and we'll pound the pavement until we can make some of those connections happen. So customer connections is probably half of what we do. And then um, the other half of what we do primarily is introductions to other financing sources, whether it's on the venture debt side, alternative financing side, um, and then most often it's introductions to other co-investors in this round and then follow-on investors for the next round. And and from that as well, I mean, there's so many things we've already talked about, a number of different things in terms of what you're doing to, to help founders. And I want to get into more details really soon uh, on some other things uh, around kind of the different issues that founders will face. But I'm curious as to what you today, Gail, are doing within this this firm. There's so many different aspects of it. I'm curious as to how your day-to-day is, is spent nowadays. I'm focused mostly on strategy. So it's a really fun time for us now that we have the eight years of history to really reflect on what what's working and where do we go from here. And, and I can tell you, we're definitely, uh, we, there's tons of opportunity for us in the marketing space. So from social media to content creation to PR, um, you know, we just rebranded to Vitalize Venture Group earlier uh, this year. How do we get really smart about marketing? Um, and then the third piece that I uh, work on is just team building. So we have such an amazing team. It's at this point, I need to get out of everybody's way and really empower them to do their job. So um, I do make sh- I do want to make sure that our team culture remains really positive and that everybody is healthy and happy. On that note as well, with the team you have there, I mean, how have you looked at which positions you need? Uh, people have a variety of, of ways they go about this at a venture firm. Some are you know much smaller in terms of how lean they stay. Some have a, a bit bigger model in terms of bringing more people on board to help. And you mentioned having someone solely kind of on the platform side helping founders. What does that team kind of consist of? How have you gone about building that for Vitalize Venture Group? Right now, we've got a team of eight individuals. And um, on the investment side, there are two of us full-time working on both the, the inbound and deal sourcing and then also um, adding value to the company and to the companies once we invest. And then the other six folks, they'll touch some pieces of investment, whether that's closing deals, helping the companies, um, doing due diligence. Uh, some of our, our folks are doing a little bit of everything. And then there are a few people on our team who focus specifically on investor relations um, or operations. And I think moving forward, at least in the next few years, a size of, of eight or so is a really good fit for um, the number of companies we have in our portfolio and how quickly we expect to grow. And in these last eight years, you've obviously worked with a number of entrepreneurs, you've, you've invested in, in, in lots of companies as well. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you're seeing within with founders at these early stage companies? Um, obviously, about founders listening to this show, I'd be curious as to knowing what are some of those kind of early mistakes and we can dive deeper into them, but I'm curious as to what you've seen so far. Sure. Um, from a general perspective, um, some of the mistakes, at, at least when, when we um, 
you know, we're only looking at a company for about two to three weeks total. So the mistakes that we see um, there are founders who aren't responsive or organized, um, or, or they're just not as polite as we would like them to be. We see sometimes founders who are really concerned with having a perfect product. And so it's, you know, they want to really make sure that before they ship anything, everything is 100% good to go. Whereas we prefer to work with teams who are really willing to execute tasks, fail, learn, adapt, like, and repeat, because um, they have to be willing to move really quickly at the early stages to make sure that they figure out what the actual right answer to the product is. Um, and then like this sounds pretty uh, basic, but a lot of times we'll see mistakes where when we talk with customers, we learn that it's more of a, a nice to have instead of a painkiller. Um, so founders really need to make sure that what they're building is something that is an absolute must have versus something that's a, you know, nice to have. With that as well, I mean, how should founders go about figuring that out with, uh, with their companies, with their products they're offering? What, what I counsel is always, um, you know, it's the Steve Blank method of figuring out what customers want. So it's this customer-centric feedback loop that informs everything in your company, um, but most importantly, your product and how you're selling that product from a marketing um, and pitch perspective. So it's, you, you have to really understand who the customer is, what they want, and what they're going to pay for. And you have to be willing to figure out how do you get them to take out their pocketbook sooner than later to put actual dollars behind what they're telling you. And with with founders of these early stage companies as well, there's so many different things they have to deal with. Obviously, building their teams out, there's the project itself, there's even the agreements around you know them as founders. What do you suggest on in terms of equity splits? There's anything you're looking for on the the equity side early on with these founders? They should think about. Uh, you know, some people have the idea of of splitting equally. It depends on you know, different factors, of course. But I'm curious to anything around that that you have suggestions on, or what you've seen that works best. Okay, I'm so glad you asked this because this is another big mistake that I see founders making early on. Um, this division of equity can come can come back to be a really big problem um, very fast, actually. So. Once again, I'm looking at pre-seed and seed, and I would say you know, 20% of the time that we look at companies, there is a former founder who has been involved in the business who no longer is. Um, and then my rule of thumb personally is that if after this round that we're about to close, there's more than 5% of what I call dead equity on the books, we're going to pass on that deal because we want to make sure that this early in the, in the game most, if not all of the equity is really um, owned by folks who are incented to add value. Um, so it's really important up front to split the equity properly and then also have a founder's agreement, um, which really outlines roles, responsibilities, vesting schedules, um, salary, that the IP is owned by the entity, and then most importantly, what happens when somebody leaves. Um, and then in terms of those splits that you're asking about, um, remember about 10 to 20% is going to go to an option pool. And then the remaining 80 to 90 will be split among the founding team. I personally like to see one person as a primary founder um, who owns a little bit more. And then, um, you know, if there's, if there are two or three founders, just making sure that the equity grants are commensurate to what the roles and responsibilities reflect. Once again, making sure that everybody's on vesting, that founder agreement has been signed such that if any of the founders leave, 
both they're protected, but most importantly, the business is protected and won't be impacted from raising financing in the future. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up because these are issues that a lot of times I feel like they're just not thought about, you know, and whether it just be ignorance with founders just not knowing about this at all, I think it's important to discuss. And I also know that you you taught a, a course on early stage financing um, as well for a number of years. Uh, first off, I'm just curious as to how, how that came about, you teaching a course at Notre Dame. Um, somebody contacted me at one point and said, hey, we would love to offer this to our students. And Notre Dame's been doing some work in the last several years trying to um, really increase the offerings there. And, you know, I love teaching. And it was a really cool opportunity for me fairly early in my time at at Vitalize Venture Group to be able to um, take a step back and prepare the content, which really makes you learn it more. So um, I put together, you know, the it was an MBA program in a first year, what they call STEAM program, which is STEM undergrads getting a business one-year degree, um, and and loved that because I was able to, um, once again, just get smarter about what I'm doing, but also <laughs> hear from the students and get their perspectives on what they really cared about in the classroom. What were some of those aspects of of the course, uh, and is there anything in particular that was most most helpful, you think, for for students going through that? Here, here's in reflecting. I think it's it's very interesting that um, the number one thing that they liked were examples. Um, so they they used to ask me whenever I showed up to um, to campus, I would take the train in from Chicago to South Bend. So when I showed up, they knew that I had done work on the train on my way there, and I was always giving examples. Okay, I talked to a founder today, and here's what we walked through. And it might be a prospective entrepreneur that we were thinking about investing in, or it might be one in our portfolio. And I, I shared uh, details about those conversations without giving away any confidential information. And you could see that they they loved hearing that insight because it gave them a, a real glimpse, um, literally on the day that it happened, <laughs> to see what founders are going through. Um, and so we, I got, I've gotten so much feedback from founders over the years that they really valued that. Um, that part of the course. And as I'm thinking forward for Vitalize Venture Group, I really need to make sure that the content that we're putting out there is um, is incorporating those lessons and insights in a real world way as well. Yeah, I'm just thinking back to my, this reminded me of my, my MBA at USC and the the guest speakers we had in class who, you know, so many times it's like, they had to mention at the beginning, like, yeah, by the way, this is all confidential, don't share anything. But because of that environment, they shared a lot of things around their companies that they were going through. And these are, you know, people had raised millions and millions of dollars and some bigger names as well, like the Evan Spiegels of the world came and speak. And like gets getting to hear that from those types of people who are running these kind of transformational companies. One, it makes it more real, but two, you love to hear the insights of what it's actually like. Cause what we right. see in the media isn't always <laughs> at all what the real situation is. And I remember Evan being so, so confident about what they were doing at Snapchat, um, even though the world was kind of freaking out about them and saying that, you know, their toasts, a lot of people were saying that, uh, they've obviously done really well within that. And even back then we heard that we're like, oh, okay, actually what he's saying makes a lot of sense because he has a lot of information versus the media who, who doesn't. Yeah. And, and on that note too, I mean, how are you thinking about the content side for, for Vitalize in terms of how you go about, you know, building this brand of a VC firm? Uh, I'd be curious to how, how you're going through this. This is definitely a work in progress. So any listeners out there who have thoughts, I am totally welcome. You can DM me on Twitter um, and we will have a conversation. And, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use some of my own advice. When I work with founders, um, you know, who ask about strategic questions, at the, after we have a conversation where I, I ask, um, 
you know, a lot of probing questions just to, to offer different perspectives. At the end of the day, I, I let them know, you've got my suggestion. I hope you get a bunch of other suggestions, but you have to go with what is authentic to you and what your gut says. So if I follow that prescription, <laughs> um, what is authentic to us? And, and that is all about empowerment, inclusion, abundance, connection. It's about creating a community um, for founders and how do we help more founders get to the stage where they're investable? So this is what we're working on right now. Um, it's, it's not even just helping founders who are ready to raise. It's helping founders before they're ready to raise so that there is a bigger pool for all these VCs to pick from. And, and to that point, then, what are some of those things that a founder should be doing even when they're considering or getting ready to raise or anything around that that founders should know? Obviously, it focuses more on the founder side of things with the show. I'm curious, to, especially with your experience, um, some of those things for these early stage founders and what they should kind of think about you know, prior to raising or potentially raising for their company. I think we've, we've focused on a couple of them. So it's, it's customer-centric product development. It is, um, it's really understanding, you know, who should be on your team early on. Um, the, the founding teams that I think are most successful are those that bring comp complementary skills to the table and they really understand how um, they're going to add value. And when we, when we look at teams um, that do thrive, I think culture is something that they, um, they address early on. And it might be in a conscious way or an unconscious way, but um, they really stand for something. They know exactly um, not just what they want to do, but how do they want to do it? How do they want to feel about what they're doing? Um, and they let that passion and that positive energy flow through to what they're doing so it's, um, I think it's really easy for early, early teams to get weighed down by all of this content and all of these suggestions from so many different people. And those who really set themselves, set themselves up well, um, they, they're true to themselves and they, they know what they want. They're able to go out and find advice and, and resources, but they stay on the path to their North Star. And with founders as well, what should they be looking for or even asking of investors or potential investors in their company when, when they're having these meetings, when they are pitching, you know, pitching venture capitalists? And what are some of those things that they should be asking venture capitalists or they should be thinking about? It is very important that founders like and trust their VCs. Um, and it, and um, there are a lot of different roles that an early stage VC can play. It might be functional expertise like marketing or sales. It might be industry expertise um, that could be both, you know, trends within the industry and also networks within that industry. It might be ops assistance that, you know, you can help a founder with all the things that we've talked about, like setting up uh, your culture, your HR, your finance, governance. Um, and then last but not least, a VC just might be a general sounding board or a cheerleader even. And as a founder, you really want to understand what is this VC going to bring to the table? And then you have to take a step back and then you've got a syndicate of investors oftentimes at the early stage. So you ho hopefully you will find a group of them that together bring a lot of diversity in terms of what they're able to add from a value perspective, because that is really going to create a better foundation for you to take it to the next level. And things to ask those investors in that, um, before you work with them, you know, you want to understand after that check is cut, what is our 
relationship going to look like? How often will we talk? What will you expect of me? What do reporting requirements look like? Um, you want to understand, does this investor do follow-on financing? If so, what does it look like? And this is a really critical one because oftentimes follow-ons are contingent upon where a venture capitalist is in their fundraising cycle. If you're one of the last uh, deals that they do out of a fund and they're raising and they might not be able to invest in your next round, is that going to be a negative signal to the market? It's totally fine um, you know, for an investor in your syndicate to, to, for that to be the case, but just make sure that um, at least some of your investors in your syndicate are going to be able to follow on assuming that your performance is good enough. And one of the other things that we we've touched on a little bit here in terms of more broadly of, of culture as well, but with founders, I mean, one of the biggest things, if you look at kind of the two main things being fundraising and hiring, then on the hiring side, any other, you know, advice on how founders should, you know, actually go about hiring, finding people, you know, best, uh, whether it be the best ways to go about that in terms of where to look or their network versus outside of their network, anything around that, Gail, that you've, you've seen that would be helpful for other founders? Well, I think I like to think about hiring for culture ad um, instead of culture fit. So the new hires should definitely be a fit for your core values, um, but they should be additive in terms of the existing makeup of the team. And I will admit, Justin, I do not know the best way to find talent. I, you know, from my experience, it's really you know, quite, quite an individual scenario based on um, you know, what is the role, where is it located, what does the company do, what are the skill sets required. You know, sometimes it's, it's best to... Um, to post on local job boards in the startup community. Sometimes it's best to go LinkedIn. Sometimes it's best to send a bunch of emails to friends or contacts in, in your network. Um, sometimes it's best to use paid sites. Like we've had, um, we've tried some different paid sites, sometimes with success, sometimes not. We've also used recruiters. Obviously this is very expensive and for folks who haven't raised money, it might not even be an option. Um, so Early stage hiring most often is done by hustling, um, but it's something that it just takes a lot of time because you never know where you're going to find the right person. Yeah, there are so many different ways that founders have gone about this, and there is no you know, right answer. It's like you're you're figuring it out yeah. based on your situation because you may you know you may happen to have an amazing network or be you know already have that in place where you can use that to to then find people for your startup whereas if you don't you may have to be more creative with it as well and there are companies out there who yeah help on the hiring front because they realize how much of a need this is for startups and so there's companies that can definitely help you around that and uh, whether it be you know full-time people contract people depends on on what you want to do on that side of things as well and and there's so many different ways that i guess founders can choose to go about that, but building that team early on, the first initial hires are so critical um, from anyone you ask. It's like that really is the starting point for everything right. else you're gonna do at your company. Yeah. And, and for you too, like, I'm curious as to where, like, what's what's the big vision for Vitalized Venture Group? I know you have a lot of things going on now. You've you've had this fund. Are you gonna is there like another fund you want to have? Like, what's the what's the future look like? So on the fund side, we are about 60 to 65% deployed in fund one. And in, in, uh, we, we do plan to raise fund two. We would start that process at some point next year. Um, so I'm in the early stages of that. And um, the thing about long-term vision, it's, you know, it's creating 
it's creating a funding organization for really early stage companies. Um, I'm definitely passionate about the pre-seed and seed stage, so we will be staying there. You know, I don't want to raise an opportunity fund to um, to invest at later stages, like which is a trend that we're seeing quite quite frequently around the industry right now. Um, but it's it goes back to building community, and I, I think that there is such a huge opportunity in the venture world to, you know, do things a little bit differently in terms of really welcoming everybody into this space. And I, I think that there's, there are a lot of things that we can do to provide resources to folks that might not have them um, at the same level that others do. And, you know, I don't have the perfect answer here, but this is something that's really important to me and I have a lot of passion around. So our team is trying to figure it out. And we're, we know a lot of others in our network at other VC funds that are working on this. Um, so it's something that I, I'm going to, have a really open mind about and just kind of see where it goes. Gail, along the way, I mean, you started in 2012 and you were like, oh, this, this investing thing is, is intriguing enough to you, for you to join and, and start this. Then you go eight years until now we're in 2020. What's been helpful in, in terms of, I love books, I'm a big reader. So in terms of books, resources along that front, what's been kind of helpful resources for you at least? And I don't actually have any favorite books to bring up, but I can share what I'm reading right now, if that's okay. Yeah. So I'm reading The Clarity Cleanse and then The Startup Community Way. And I'll start with um, The Clarity Cleanse is a book about setting intentions about what you want to accomplish. Um, I think there's a huge power in being intentional and putting energy out there to manifest in positive ways. So I spend a little bit of time um, thinking about energy and intuition and impactfulness and how we can get a little bit smarter there um, from a scientific perspective to enhance what we're doing in the startup and VC world. And then The Startup Community Way by Brad Feld, I think it's an essential book for both VCs and startups to read right now as you know, we've talked a little bit about community on this call. Um, I think that moving forward, it will become the cornerstone of how a successful VC or founding team approaches what they're doing. Um, so I, I, once again, I've got personal interest in both the energy side and also in this community piece and would welcome conversations from anybody out there that also has interest and in, in thoughts <laughs> on this because we're, we're learning every day on these things. <laughs> yeah. And you see some companies really leveraging community to, to build their businesses and even on the VC side as well. And I mean, I've talked to Ruben, Ruben Harris from career karma recently, and they've created a very, very strong community around what they're doing in the career side to help people, um, you know, get jobs in tech and they're going to be expanding even more from there. And companies like that have done That's so, awesome. yeah, who've done it so well. And then even another one that comes to mind right away as well as, as Dion Pralica from soul savvy and they built a community around sneakers and sneaker culture. And they have a newsletter and they have a thriving community. I think it's, I forget how much they're doing, like uh, tens of thousands of revenue per month and uh, they're crushing it and it's all built off of community first and that's where they started. And so I, I agree. It's going to be interesting to see how this evolves in terms of people leveraging community more, really trying to focus on building community, especially when you look at a lot of times with how the cost of acquisition is going up amongst the kind of typical channels and being, you know, trying to be more creative around how you acquire customers and also retain customers. Um, and the community is going to play, I think, a huge part of that. And and one of the things I'm wondering too, just with all you have going on, and especially as an investor, you could in theory look at investment deals all day and they're constantly at work. How do you recharge and step away from work, Gail? I would say it's it's primarily nature. 
and actually uh, we're on a road trip right now. I'm lucky enough to be able to do some traveling because we were, we're able to work from anywhere. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, being outside is a really important way, at least for me to stay grounded. And I've got a, a very lovable yellow Labrador named Samson. So he used to go outside <laughs> often and it's a good excuse for me to go, to go outside and clear my mind. I love it. I love it. It's great to have that. I actually just visited a friend recently who got a puppy and uh, just, just being around her puppy was just like, oh my goodness, so lovable. It makes <laughs> you just like absolutely love just hanging out and having a little release from kind of the day to day staring at a computer. Uh, it was so much fun. You know, there's science out there that shows that your mood improves just by looking at animals, which is kind of crazy. Oh my goodness. I believe it. A hundred percent. And, and Gail, is there anything else you would uh, tell other entrepreneurs out there as they're, as they're starting companies, especially early stage founders, because that's who you primarily work with, any other advice or comments that uh, you think would be helpful for them as they're you know starting companies or building companies? I'm just curious if there's anything else. Yeah, I think it goes back to just doing what you love. What are you passionate about? You know, startups, I tell my friends that are starting businesses, you know, you should give this at least three years because there are these ups and downs along the way and it takes quite a long time before you really know what you've got. So you have to love it. You've got to be authentic to yourself um, and just really follow, follow your intuition. You know, do what feels right. Do what, um, do what is going to make impact for both you and others. And by really tapping into that, I think we, we all have a really great shot of success. I love it. And Gail, where can people go to learn more about what you're doing and connect with you as well? Sure. I've got a website, gail.bc. So G-A-L-E dot B-C. And that has links to a blog that I write called Micro Insights Major Impact. It's got a link to our YouTube series called Via for Founders, which talks through a lot of the same types of things that we talked through today. And then there's a link to my office hours for founders and aspiring VCs. And my Twitter um, handle is on there as well. Great. Gail, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Justin, it was lovely to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.